thank you so much. It's good to be with you. I um, want us to begin by saying thank you one more time to this incredible worship team that was up here. Wasn't that amazing? Wow. You know, as I, as I think through that, one of my favorite instruments is the violin. Love, And we got a chance to hear such a selection of bow and strings this morning. I, wow, not every church is that fortunate. And the songs, boy, the voices, you guys are so blessed. And uh, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. I'm so, so honored to uh, be able to stand in this pulpit of Pastor Mike and to share with you just some thoughts as we kind of jump into this. We're beginning the, per- the sermon series, those six prayers that we do not pray enough. And I want to share with you the very first one. It comes from Isaiah chapter 64. And while you're turning there, I'll introduce this passage with a little bit of context and another story. When we see Isaiah, he had a tough job. He had to share and challenge a nation that was not listening. Sounds like parenting, doesn't it? The truth of it, though, is Isaiah was sharing with a nation that was not listening. And God was about to bring judgment as we find in the book of Daniel where everybody was hauled away to another nation and both Israel fell and Judah fell. Well, Isaiah was prophesying to the nation of Israel and he was warning them. But here's the beauty. There was this remnant. There was a group that was trying to follow God, a small group. I feel like the church today is a small remnant, a small group in our culture today that is trying to pursue God. Do you not? And it is, it's hard. It's a tough area. So unless we pray these prayers, we're going to be facing some challenges along the way. And so as you uh, are turning to Isaiah 64, let me share with you a quick story to understand this remnant. Do you recognize this building? The Alfred P. Murrer building. Where is it located? It was located in Oklahoma City. And on April the 19th, 1995, a routine morning by all descriptions, a yellow rider truck pulled up in front of that building, parked, and it just passed 9 a.m., an explosion, ground zero there, and literally from domestic terrorism that we had, that building became a heap of rubble for all intents and purposes. Absolute devastation from what occurred. And 168 people within that building lost their lives. There was a daycare center on the front, right up close to the street. There were 21 infants and toddlers in there along with three daycare workers. All three workers lost their lives and all but six of those infants and babies lost their lives. Six of them live today. And while they do not remember that day, they do not forget that day. They're a remnant that gets a chance to live on. We are a remnant that God has allowed to be here in America, and we get a chance to live on in a certain way, but we've got to pray the prayer that we find in Isaiah 64. Well, across the way, across the courtyard 
from this building. As this explosion sounded, 258 buildings in the area had shattered glass. The destruction was devastating. But across the courtyard, across the way there, was a tree that was mangled, it was burned, and all the leaves were taken off of that tree. And this is a picture of it many years later, even here. But as it was broken, and absolutely they did not know if it would survive or not, people came in, and they began to take special measures to tie up the limbs. They began to shape the limbs so it would grow back in the right directions. They began to provide health and nourishment to that tree. Today, that tree is called the survivor tree. And it is a thing of beauty if you ever visit that memorial, that monument. I'm a big fan of Washington, D.C. I love our monuments there. I love the monuments of our founding fathers. But all of the nation's monuments I've ever visited, this is probably my favorite for many reasons. It is beautifully designed, well laid out, and is such a tribute to the people who lost their lives that day. But it's also a tribute to those who survive and what they're going to do to rebuild a community. I'm here to ask you this morning, as a church, as God's people, are we here to be the survivors, to rebuild, to make a difference? In Isaiah chapter 64, we're going to jump in here into the text. And I want us to realize that Isaiah is crying out in this prayer. And he cries out with us in the beginning, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as the fire sets out twigs ablaze and causes the water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies. And he continues on for the next several verses, much like we find the prophets earlier as Israel was conquered. They would say, God, show your presence to the enemies. As Moses would pray, God, show your presence to Pharaoh. As others would pray, show your presence to the Philistines, on and on. Isaiah is calling out to God here. And he said, there's some of us who remain. And in verse 5, he makes the transition with that word, but. But we continue to sin against them. And you were angry. How can we be saved? He's admitting imperfection. None of us in this room are without sin. Even as believers, we continue to have flaws. We're broken. But thankfully, the story does not stop there. Look at verse 8 as we hasten to the key passage. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. It says you are the Father. Did you realize that most of us view our Heavenly Father through the lens of how we viewed our earthly Father? Now for some of us, that can be healthy, that can be nurturing, that can be positive. For some of us in that room, that's not so positive. We may have had an abusive Father. We may have had an absentee Father. We may not even know who our Father is. And for those of you who fit any of those categories or even similar, it's really hard to trust a heavenly Father you can't see when you could not trust an earthly Father that you did not know or know in a poor manner here on this earth. The beauty of this passage, though, is he says, God, you're the Father, but you're also the potter. And he says here, you can shape us. 
I'm very thankful that God is not satisfied with where I am and he continues to mold me on a daily basis. Hopefully I'm not what I was yesterday. And tomorrow, hopefully I'll not be what I am today. God is going to continue to work with that brokenness and make all the difference in what we do, but only if we're willing to pray that prayer. God, shape me. Why are we asking him to shape us? So that we can shape others. If it were about shaping into perfection, God would shape us and take us on to heaven. But he leaves us here in this earth as a remnant, as a survivor, so that we can be the salt and light to other generations. Now, when we think about this, I want to add some fun to it. How many ever played with Play-Doh as a child? If God's the potter and we're the clay, the best representation of that is Play-Doh. Okay? Are there some creative people in this room? Absolutely, we have creative people all over. Okay, here's what I need. I need three volunteers who's willing to play with Play-Doh. Let me see your hands now. Come on. Huh? All right, we got one right up here. We got any more back over here? I'm seeing hands right in the very back. Okay, one more. Okay, stop right there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw up what I need because I need, here we go, there's some three things that I need. I need for us, we're going to shape out of Play-Doh special moments that we had with parents, lessons that we want to teach our kids, or phrases or words that dad or mom, you can change out the word, says a million times till you're sick of it, okay? Teenagers, can I get a volunteer on that one? Any chance here? Things that dad or mom says a million times that you'd love to shape out there? For mine, I'll give you an example. My dad would say, son, close the front door. We don't air condition the whole outside. And so I would shape and mold a door and put a doorknob on it. That would be my picture, okay? Can I get a teenager willing to do one of those and make fun of mom and dad for a minute? Can I? Okay, I got one. Come on up. Come on up. All right. All three of you, come on up to the stage, if you will. All three of you. All right. Here's what we have. I'm not serving lunch, but please take a plate. All right, thank you for volunteering. You were almost there, but thank you. You, you stepped out on a limb here. You get to pick your two colors first. Pick any two you want to. Okay, blue and white. Okay. Get to pick. And two. Okay. Yellow and red. Okay. Now, pick one of these for me. Good. Okay. Okay, I needed one back. This is a game we play where I let you pick out what I want you to have. Have you figured that out? Okay. I'm holding these two for a reason, okay? I need contrasting colors that we'll come back to in a moment. Okay, your assignment's pretty easy. Are you going to do dad or mom? What's the, mom. mom, okay, don't tell us what phrase it is. Okay, is mom in the room? Okay, good deal. You can go back. You can sit anywhere on the front row you want to, and you can begin to work, okay? You put it on there because we're going to come up and reveal it later. Okay, tell me your name. Maya. Okay, thank you, Maya, for volunteering. Okay, which one are you going to do of the first two? Lessons for kids, okay? You can head back and you can do yours. That leaves you with special moment with either mom or dad or parents, okay? Can you handle that, Bo? Okay, good deal. Go back to your front row somewhere so I can keep an eye on you. In the last service, I had them on the front row, and two of them disappeared. And I kept delaying for a minute, thinking they went out the back of the room. They had to go. And I'm like, and I kept delaying. And finally, I go, where are they? And they were sitting on the second row, but they left the plate on the front row, and I just missed it. 
And I was like, okay, so you guys got to stay where I can see you, okay? That, that's, that's the deal, okay? Now, I need an overachiever in the room. Point to somebody that's an overachiever, because overachievers tend not to volunteer. Point to the overachiever in the room, okay? Do we, we see any? Okay, I'm, I'm seeing several in this room. Let's grab, come on up here. Yes, whichever one. Okay, hold it. I, I'm going to use you as a tiebreaker, the lady in the striped shirt, okay? Because two were pointing to you. You were pointing to your friend next to you. Come on up. I'm going to let you pick out any two colors you would like. Okay. All right. Tell me your name. Abby. Abby. Abby, here's a plate. Your job is real simple. I want you to mix the green and I want you to mix the pink to where we cannot see any green or any pink. So you've got to mix them together really good. Okay. Can you handle that? Yeah. That's Abby, right? Okay. Thank you, Abby. Here we go. So while they're working... I want us to recognize that while we demonstrate the potter and the clay through messing with Play-Doh, that God shapes us, and he's far more creative than we are. And so I want us to understand that there's a beautiful lesson when we recognize the potter and clay. But God has been doing this for generations. He's been doing this since the beginning of Scripture. And when we read his word in the very first chapter we find the greatest story of God with Plato ever. What is it? Creation. He took nothing. You guys at least got a plate and some Play-Doh to start with. God started with nothing, and he spoke, and the earth began to form and come into existence and find shape. And each day he added more beauty until the sixth day he took the dust of the earth and he created man and he created woman. And he said, that is very good. And when he did that and shaped humanity, what command did he give? He said, be fruitful and multiply. Sounded like a pretty easy task, didn't it? Now, I know what some of you guys are saying. Yes, that's a good task. Be fruitful, multiply. You know, that's not what God totally meant there. Let me illustrate that. If God had just meant populate the world... When Noah comes along and there's lots of people in the earth, God would have been pleased. But God was not pleased. Why? Because while there were many, many people in the earth, there was sin and it was very plenteous. And God looked and he was disappointed. And we know the story. God says, you know what? I really kind of need to start over here. He says, I'm going to bring a flood. Noah, I need you to build this great big boat, this ark. And it took him 120 years, and he finally completed the ark. He says, okay, take your family inside. And this whole time, Noah's saying, anybody who'd like to enter in the ark can come in, but only Noah and his family went in. And after the days of the flood, when there was finally dry ground and the ark rested, Noah, his three sons, their wives, and Noah's wife walked out on the dry ground. And God repeated the same command we find in Genesis chapter 1. Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Here's why we know that that command says, multiply my image to the next generation. Share my works. Share who I am. The image of God reflected in humanity from parents to children to grandchildren to great-grandchildren has always been God's intent. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says it so eloquently. As we do life, 
Make sure our kids know that you, as parents and grandparents, love me and love my word. And if your kids know that, they will follow that. But it cannot be that they know it only on Sunday morning. Because Deuteronomy 6 says, when you get up and you send them off to school, when you tuck them in bed at night, when you sit down at the dinner table, in all the places of life, just let God overflow. It doesn't mean preach a sermon all the time, always be reading, but God should not be compartmentalized only to church. And we do walk away from church thinking that's, that's it. And God said, be fruitful and multiply. I want to share with you how he continued to use generations throughout Scripture. I shared with the men this weekend that when I do my Bible reading, the one place I love dearly is genealogies. How about anybody else? Yeah, me either. No, I hate them. In fact, I often do my Bible reading by audio, and I listen to the little app read it out loud to me. And I can tell you, when they read it out loud and you have even a voice like James Earl Jones or somebody else, it still doesn't sound any better. Okay? Genealogies are just boring. But genealogies are there because it shows a trajectory of families. Where are you going? Where have you been? What are you passing from one generation to the next? Well, I want us to look at these three chairs this morning and realize that God uses generations to pass along his discipleship. Bruce Wilkinson shared this message, and I've adapted as a D6, Deuteronomy 6 message. If we look at Joshua, the end of that book, Moses had passed along the leadership to Joshua. They were at the end of that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And Joshua makes that declarative statement that we all know, we probably memorized, as for me and my house, what does it say? We will serve the Lord. That was a pretty bold statement because Joshua was about to die. Matter of fact, a few verses later, he does die. The reason why Joshua could make that statement is because he was living out Deuteronomy 6. And his family stayed true. He was that preserved remnant that we find. In fact, his remnant passes all the way through to Nehemiah at the end of Scripture. And we find Nehemiah faithfully serving God. But the problem is not all the other families of Israel did that. Because in the end of that same chapter where we find, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, it says there arose a generation who knew about God. But they had not experienced the feeding of manna. They had not been through the crossing of the Red Sea because this was the younger generation that grew up from the older generation who died off in the wilderness. So they heard about the stories, but they did not experience God firsthand. Then we go to Judges chapter 2. And we have that sad indicting verse where it says, And there arose a generation who knew not God. As for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. They sit in the first chair. There arose a generation who knew about God. They sit in the second chair. There arose a generation who knew not God. That's a third chair sitter. Think about it this way. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham sat in the first chair. He was a man of God, the patriarch of Israel. But he wasn't a perfect man. These generations are filled with dysfunction, much like our families today. We're imperfect, we're broken, we're hurting. But God can redeem, he can shape and mold us and make us. 
But Abraham, to preserve his life one day, decided to lie about his wife. Self-preservation. Isaac heard that story. And one day, when faced with the same circumstance, Isaac lied about his wife to preserve himself. And when Isaac had children, one of them was named Jacob. What did Jacob mean? Liar, deceiver. His life was filled with lies. The sins of generations got passed along. What do you do that is much like your parents? If I looked at the wives in the room and I say, what does your husband do that is exactly like his father? You could give me a list, couldn't you? Some of the husbands are going, oh no, please don't go there. Don't go there. I hear this all the time. Husbands, if I ask you what about your wife is exactly like your mother-in-law, you'd look at me and say, absolutely nothing. She's perfect. Isn't that right? That's right. Good, good husband back there. So we have the generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we also have David, the king of Israel, the second king of Israel. David was a man after God's own heart, pursuing God, pursuing the building of a nation. And yet, David one day when he had withdrawn from battle, was up on his rooftop and he was looking around and he saw Bathsheba. And we know that story. He got involved. It was an affair. And unfortunately, sin came from that. And so David's involvement with one woman said to his son Solomon, it's okay. So Solomon took it to the extreme, didn't he? Hundreds of women. And then we find Rehoboam, the fourth king of Israel, the one who split the kingdom in two, Judah and Israel. David, Solomon, Rehoboam. You see, if you sit in this chair, you're totally committed to God. Not perfect. Flawed, broken in many ways. But you're committed. Our kids are watching our lives. And they're sitting in this chair oftentimes, and they know about God. They know God. It's just not quite as deep as the ones who are sitting in this chair. And sometimes we have grown up in this second chair, compartmentalizing God, going to church on Sunday, but not being as faithful of a disciple throughout the week. We haven't lived it out. And our children are now sitting in the third chair. They're like, hold it, dad and mom argue and fight on the way to church. We can't find a shoe. We're always looking for the hairbrush. If anything can go wrong, it goes wrong on Sunday. And dad acts one way in church and another way at home. Dad's all nice and polite to everybody at church, but man, that's not how he sounds with my mom. Or maybe mom is all polite and pleasant with all the kids in their life group, but they're not so pleasant with me at home. And so our kids are here, so we're committed if we're in the first chair. We're compromising if we're in the second chair because we're living in two different worlds. But if we're in this third chair, we're looking and we're confused. We don't get it. And as soon as I get old enough, I'm going to leave this place. And I'm going to leave church. Because you're confusing me. That's the three chairs. That's the three generations. So I ask you, here, we have the promise of God. Here, we have the pleasures in front of God. And here, 
We have no priorities of God. Which chair are you sitting in this morning? If we're really, really honest, you're in church, so I'm fairly certain that you're probably in one of these two. And while I'd like to admit to you that every day of my life I sit in the first chair, there are times, several days go by, and I realize I haven't opened up God's Word. And I find myself in the second chair because I let busyness take me away. And my kids know it because my attitude and my grumpiness kind of shows through. And I confuse them. And when I see that and I recognize that, I've got to move back because I want to keep bringing my children along. I don't want to jettison them off to the side. I don't want to lose them. I need to stay in this first chair. But we do have seasons where we move back and forth. There may be even a time where we slip all the way back here. But we need to be living in this first chair. And if we can live here and stay here, we can actually move over and share it with the next generation. But when we look around and we realize why our children are leaving church, sometimes it's because we're residing in that second chair. That's where we are. Let me give you another more pointed illustration directly from Christ on the three chairs. Revelation chapter 3. He's talking to the church at Laodicea. You know the story well. He's talking about the temperature of water. He said, I really wish that you were hot. You were in this first chair, totally committed to me. Or I wish that you were cold. You were just confused and you don't know me. But because you're lukewarm, you sit in the second chair. I want to spew you out of my mouth because you're confusing everybody around. You don't look like a Christian all the time. You don't look like a non-Christian all the time. I wish you looked pretty distinct, but because you're here, you're giving my name a bad reputation. You're not displaying the image of God. I want to spew you out of my mouth. It's time to move from the second chair to the first chair. And the way we do that is look at another prophet of Israel. Jeremiah 18 says, Then I went down to the potter's house. And there he was, the potter. He was making something at the wheel, and the vessel that he made of clay was marred. In the hand of the potter. What does marred mean? It had a flaw. I could give you a list of my flaws. My wife could give you a longer list of my flaws. None of us are without blemish. But we all can put ourselves into the potter's hand. And he says, here, even though there's Mars in it, he's willing to make us again into another vessel. One that seems good for the potter to make. And so with the Play-Doh, just like they are shaping the creation, our Heavenly Father gets to shape us. So let's bring our four people back up on stage and let's see what they have. Okay? I'm going to place all three of the items back up here. <clears throat> Thank you, Pastor Mike. We have Abby right here. Is that right? Maya, sorry. Where's Abby? Over there. Thank you. Okay. You hang tight. In fact, Abby, have a seat right over here. We're going to let you take a rest, okay? Maya, you did what mom, do I remember right, says a million times. Come out here. Come out here. Can I hold your plate? Now, which way is upright? Like that. Okay. Can everybody see this? That's really good, by the way. Tell us what we have. 
Um, this is a salt shaker. This is a salt shaker. Yes. And what does mom say? She always tells Can, hold me. Hold it, hold it. Can you do it in her voice? No. <laughs> okay, okay. I just want to check. She always tells me to season my words with grace. Season. Oh, wow. Sermon over. Wow. <laughs> Drop the mic, leave. Woo. Let's give mom a hand. Wow. My, my mind so did not go there. My, I knew this was a salt shaker, and I thought mom was going to say, you don't need salt on your food. I mean, I went a million different directions, not that. That is wonderful. So you're learning from mom in that first chair, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. That's incredible. That's outstanding. Thank you for volunteering. Okay, step forward. What, can I turn it up so everybody can see? We can try. Okay, what do we have here? We have snowball cookies. Snowball cookies. Did you make snowball cookies? What age? All the time. All uh, the time. Probably like six. What was it, What else was in snowball cookies? Vanilla, a little bit of salt, um, snow, um, powdered sugar. Powdered sugar, okay. I grew up in Florida. Our snowball cookies didn't taste like that. I don't know what the deal was, okay? Um, now, this is... Lessons for, uh, for your kids. And what was that lesson? Um, to share with others and to share Christ. So how many want a bite of her snowball cookies? How many have ever eaten Play-Doh? Let me see your hands. We can, honestly, well, come on. There's more in this group. You're not admitting it. What does it taste like? Salty. Salty. Yes, absolutely. Okay, it's, it's child's toy. It's edible, okay? All right, thank you so much. But what do you have here? Wow. Okay. Hold, hold it. Did your wife make this? Was she, did she slide up to the front row and help you? Yeah. This, okay. This is all me. That's all you. Okay. Yeah, that's all me. I had a special moment with parents. Uh, when our children were younger, we were living in Kentucky, didn't have a whole lot of money, and we decided we were going to do something special for our kids, and we ended up uh, putting in Lady and the Tramp while we did the spaghetti scene from Lady and the Tramp <laughs> for our kids. That's awesome. That's and awesome. And it was my wife... She was the cook, I was the maitre d', and of course I had the little, I had the menu and I had the towel over the arm yeah. and everything. So, and the two hearts represent my wife and I, that's the love that we have for each other and the love for Christ. And we were able to incorporate all that together to make a good memory for our kids. Wow, wow. Let's give, him a, let's give all of them a hand for up here. Before, before they sit down, before they sit down, let me, let me throw a couple of quick lessons your way, and then we'll bring up a couple more in a minute. If they can do this in 15 minutes, imagine what our Heavenly Father, the potter, can do over our lifetime. The love, the detail. Now, one of the things that I often do in this setting is I can get the camera to zoom in really, really close, and the one item that is really important about the potter is the potter leaves their fingerprints on the clay. God is very intentionally leaving his fingerprints in your life. And he's molding and he's shaping us, just as each one of them have helped us with this. So with that, let's cover some other principles that we have here. Let's let you guys go back to your seat. We're going to leave the overachiever sitting up here on the, on the table. Yeah, you can, you can keep it right over there, okay? All right, now, here's some principles while she's pondering what we're going to talk about for her, Okay. Before they could begin to work, they had to open the, tub, the tubs of Play-Doh, the cans of Play-Doh, whatever you call them. God is not going to force his will upon you. 
If you want to pray this prayer, God, shape me, he will allow you, but he's not going to shape you until you're allowing him to. Yes, events will happen in your life. Yes, there there will be causes and effect. Yes, there will be circumstances. But for God to really take a hold and do something special in your life, you've got to say, God, I'm ready. I want you to shape me. You've got to be open to it. But then I want you to recognize that God shapes us through three specific areas, and there's many more. But he shapes us through generations. Moms and dads are the number one influencer of their kids. Grandparents are right behind them. You, as parents in this church, are shaping other generations of other kids from other families. But God is using you because that's the way his image is passed along. That's what he meant in Genesis 1. That's what he meant about, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't say, I'm just the God of Abraham. He wants to use generations to work. And generations mean that families continue what starts at church. Church and home working together. You are not a disciple, you are a disciple maker. So you're shaping other people as God shapes you. The second one is that God shapes us through scripture. We're to be in his word every single day. Because when I face a moment where I've got a question or a challenge, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit recalls something I've read in my quiet time. And he allows it to be applied at that moment. And that's how God shapes our attitude, our behavior, and our thinking. That's his wonderful hand as the potter in our lives. And then the last one is that, yes, even in the midst of our fears that paralyze us and grip us, just like the song says, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm no longer a slave to fear. There are things God is calling you to do, and you've been saying, no, I'm not quite ready. Maybe you want to move from that second year up to the first and say, I know that means an outward commitment to my family, and I'm not sure I want to go there. The one thing I want you to know is when you move from the second chair to the first chair, you may not reside there. You may slip back and you may have a failure. God's still there to redeem that marring. Because of the third F there, the followership. You're admitting, I want to follow. The one principle of leadership that's really important is relationship. You can't be a leader without followers. God is our heavenly father, the ultimate leader. But he will not force followership on us. We're saying, God, I'm placing my clay, my life, into your hands. I want to follow. And I'm ready to remove those fears. I'm ready to deal with those failures. So, we come to the overachiever. Come on up here. All right. You, where are you? Do you have the cans that you started with? Oh, they're throw, them, throw them up here. Who has those close by? Toss them up here for me. Okay. You know where they are. It's really important the audience see this. All right, she started with these two colors, which is kind of amazing to see her results. Lime green, neon pink, sort of, okay? Can we, is it going to stick? Can we turn it over? Can we, they see it on the white background and kind of really get the idea? That's pretty amazing in it. Can you see any pink in that? Can you see any green in that? No. Did she do a good job? Good. Don't give her a hand because she's only half done. Don't, no, no, don't applaud, don't applaud. She does not deserve your applause. Anybody could have done this, okay? We said, we said overachiever. Everybody could have done this, right? You Come on, you could have done this. That was task one. Task two, separate it back out and put it in the separate cans. A Plato principle says that is not possible. 
But here's the beauty is, the potter and the clay, with God that is possible. When we get mired in the fears and failures, when we get mired in the sin, when we confess and say, God, I place my life, my clay in your hands, God can remove the sin. He can separate out what we cannot separate out. So as overachieving as we are, there's some things we got to say, God, I can't do it. I just place my life into your hands and I trust you accordingly. Let's now give her a hand, okay, for that. <laughs> Second Timothy says, but in a great house there, is only there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but there are vessels of wood and clay. I'm very thankful that I get to be one of the wood and clay ones. I'm probably not adequate to be gold and silver, but I'm happy to be a marred clay potter, pottery vessel used in the master's house, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for a good work. Do you want to be a vessel used by the master, the potter himself? Do you want to be used in the great house of God? One story as we close. When I turned 12, my parents threw probably the largest birthday party I ever had as a child. They invited in all my class friends and people from church, and they rented out the skating rink that was not the one you go to on Friday night and Saturday night that had the really cool, smooth floor. They rented the one out that had the wooden floor that was the armory there. And so all these boards ran this way, and you walked in this side, and they had a little snack bar area here. You put on your skates, and you begin to skate around. And it's really good as long as you go in the long way on the rectangle. But as soon as you can start making that turn, it's thump, 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 thump. So you make that other turn, and you go straight. Well, down here is a snack shop area, and it kind of had this half wall to keep people from running in to where you stop and get your hamburgers, fries, and drinks. But on the half wall, all my friends brought in and set down presents, wrapped presents in boxes. Now, you can look at me by my age. And while I still consider myself a relatively young man, when I was 12, we didn't have the cool iTunes gift cards and Starbucks gift cards and all the other cool toys that you would get today. You know what the common present young boys got at that age? You guessed it, model cars. It's really important at this point in the story for me to tell you, I hate model cars. I had 25 people at my party, and I think I got 24 model cars. And like a good boy, I opened the presents, smiled, said thank you, took them home, shoved them under my bed, never look at them again. But after a few months, I got bored, must have had my friends off playing somewhere. I decided I would finally put together one of those models. So I looked through all the boxes. I pulled out the coolest, fastest-looking car there, and I opened up the box. How many have ever put together a model car? Let me see your hands in here. How many have ever put it together? Okay, a lot more than I thought. I mean, this is, this is a relic, Okay. And what happens on the first 75% of the directions of a model car? What are you working on? The engine. That's exactly right. Do you know how many pieces there are to the engine? Do you know the little toothpicks with the glue you have to use to put together that engine? You know how long it takes to put together that engine? Oh, my word. Well, finally, I got this model car put together. I had cool fire racing stripes down the side. I had the chrome wheels. It was sitting on a shelf in my bedroom. And only my parents knew the one secret that nobody else knew. You know what that secret was? There was no engine in it. I glued the hood shut so nobody would ever know. God's word, church, prayer, is the engine of our lives. 
and some of you dads are sitting in the second chair with your hoods glued shut and your kids know it. They're confused. I'm asking you to pry open that hood and say, God, I want to put myself in your hands. I want you to be the potter. I'll be the clay. I don't know if I'm going to get it right, but I'm ready to move to the first chair. I want to make a difference for the generations to come. Let's bow our heads for prayer. God.